The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, you'll hear from Despina Katsakakis, Head of Occupier Business Performance at Cushman and Wakefield. Speaking with Larry Guthrie, CCIM Institute's Director of Communications, Despina discusses best practices on reopening workplaces, including Cushman and Wakefield's six feet office concept that reinforces social distancing improves air quality, and optimizes workspace. She also shares how the future of the office sector will be impacted as a result of the pandemic and how commercial real estate professionals can be proactive in their preparations. Hi, I'm Larry Guthrie, Director of Communications for CCIM Institute, and I'm here with Despina Katsakakis, Head of Workplace Business Performance at Cushman Wakefield, one of the largest global real estate services firms. Thank you for joining me today, Despina. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Wonderful. So back in April, Cushman and Wakefield announced the formation of the Recovery Readiness Task Force to develop best practices, products, and partnerships to prepare everyone for post-COVID-19 recovery and the eventual return to the workplace, which is actually starting now a little bit in the U.S. Certainly, your firm knows a little something about this. Uh, CNBC reported that over the past month, Cushman and Wakefield helped 10,000 organizations in China move nearly 1 million people back to work after the country reopened its economy after the pandemic. So that's really what I'm excited to chat about and explore with you today. You know, what did you learn from that experience and what does the work environment look like as we reopen the economy back up here in the States? So backing up a bit, what was the strategy behind choosing the task force members? What key expertise were you looking to gather in kind of one virtual room to solve this problem? That's a great question, actually. And uh, our global president, John Forrester, decided to bring together a blend of our best-in-class global expertise that represented really three areas of focus each to have a sort of critical response service for instance, cleaning, property management, workplace design, which was my contribution. Those that already had benefited from valuable and direct experience in the return to work in Asia, as you mentioned, we had by that point already moved uh, over a million people back to the office there. And then the third group were innovators and technology champions, as well as those with relationship with government and policymakers in order to achieve influence at the highest level. So pretty much an eclectic group that represented a number of different areas of expertise and influence uh, across our business. And of course, very importantly, um, as always, we aim to uh, bring together and align our global best practice and expertise and pull it together to bring it to clients. So it's interesting. You mentioned that there was an advocacy piece to the task force. Can you talk to me more about the role of that? Um, I think that's one of those overlooked pieces, right? That I think everyone's uh, focused on property management and that, that's kind of the 
the obvious, uh, more obvious choices. But can you share more about the advocacy piece? Yes, of course. And and Bruce Mosler, who's based in our New York office, uh, one of the most senior um, colleagues uh, in the firm, uh, is very much leading that particular piece. Uh, and we've been advising both um, government institutions, uh, the city of New York, working with the governor's office and governors across the United States on that. But also, um, we've been very privileged to tap into the business roundtable, which our CEO, Brett White, participates in. As you know, that is made up of uh, the CEOs of uh, some of the top companies in the world. Uh, And that also gives us another insight. And that particular roundtable with uh, our contribution and many other experts from around the world has been putting together uh, recommendations to the CDC, to to the White House, to key decision makers around the world. That's wonderful. That's uh, good to know. Hopefully that that the more information, the better it seems around this particular uh, problem because it's so unique. I don't think anybody could have foreseen this or prepared for this. So it's, it's definitely uh, new territory for all of us. And in response to this, you, out of that task force, the firm was able to launch a new office design concept, the six feet office uh, described as the new social distancing program that was developed by the firm uh, being piloted in the Netherlands. It seems like you took a very holistic approach to this. Tell me about the methodology behind the six feet office. Yes, and um, so it's it's very interesting to to see the six feet office as part of this um, focus on driving evidence based solutions and creating an evidence based roadmap to help our clients navigate that uncertainty on two horizons, how to prepare for a safe return to the office, and then how do you use lessons learned to inform and reimagine the future role uh, of the workplace and and work itself. So um, uh, the head of our Netherlands business was actually asked by the Minister of Finance how we were responding to this new six-foot economy. And we decided to bring a number of the ideas that we had learned from around the world and build out an actual prototype using our Amsterdam office and put in place some of the key ideas which focus on a number of protocols, behaviors, and physical changes to create a safe environment. So the Six Feet Office really begins by looking um, at analyzing the current work environment and and assess any opportunities for improvement within that uh, in terms of uh, air quality and safety. But also it has a set of very clear um, rules of conduct because behavior is going to be one of the critical elements as we re-enter the office. It looks at very simple things like uh, a visually displayed um, and unique one-way circulation system to minimize congestion points and to enable um, an easier flow of the office uh, and through the office. We look at policies of how you should enter the building itself 
We look at using um, design to nudge behaviors, uh, simple things like patterns on the carpet that make you aware what a six foot distance is and how to create buffer zones and buffer areas between people. I uh, use alternate seating, reduce the number of chairs in meeting rooms, but also leverage um technology and sensors to look at what the actual patterns of use are, uh, looking at how we can reduce touch points and increase cleaning protocols, uh, reducing the use of shared equipment, uh, implementing clean desk policies, and, and beginning to explore what a future touchless office might look like. Um, I'm not sure if you were aware, but I think uh, last week, we uh, announced that we are launching uh, a scientific analysis of this prototype. We've partnered with the Well Living Lab, uh, which is uh, at the Mayo Clinic. And we are joining up with Delos, the creators of the Well Building Standard, and Heinz to uh, test the six-foot office prototype and protocols to assess the actual uh, air, air quality impact, as well as be able to look at surface contaminants and behavior. That's fantastic. Um, I'm very excited to hear more about that uh, research and the results of that. I think um, the physical piece is uh, so important, and I love the uh, like I said, that holistic piece and the, now that you're taking the rigor behind this with air quality, you know, that's, that's so very important. What were the best practices or the recommendations that really the six feet office concept encompasses? Well, air quality, we look at in a number of ways. First of all, we look at, um, again, lessons learned in China were very interesting, uh, in this aspect because, as you probably know, many of the new buildings in China had put in place uh, higher specification air quality systems, and often many of them had well certification to deal with the level, the high level of pollution that many of the Chinese cities already faced. We found that those buildings were. Um, easier to reopen, not just because they already had better air quality, but also because people feel safer when they recognize that there's better filtration in the air and therefore possibly a safer environment for them. So when we look at the air quality, you know, you, you can implement that, you can uh, increase that through localized filtration, but even just cleaning the existing system to make sure there are no underlying contaminants before you reopen the building is absolutely critical. So how is that pilot program doing now? It's a, as far as I know you're going to go through and have this very um, scientific uh, analysis, but certainly there's some anecdotal or even just your own expertise within Cushman and Wakefield that has been able to take a look at this concept and see what were the lessons learned that's kind of informed some changes to the program or reinforced some really key pieces of mm. that concept. 
Well, very interestingly, I think the the thing for us is that we when we launched the Six Feet office, it was very important to reinforce to people that this is a prototype. It is something that we use to co-create it with clients and apply it in the different conditions that our clients might be experiencing in their space. And that's a very significant part of this. So uh, one of the most important parts of the Six Feet Office is an assessment of the conditions of the office environment that uh, any organization we're working with might have in place. And, And the reason for that is that as you realize this is a constantly evolving, very fast-paced, changing landscape of information. So we see our recovery readiness guide, the Six Feet Office, as, you know, iterating, evolving, as living prototypes and documents that can respond to more and new information that comes about. So that's been essential. And being able to have that flexibility to go in to an organization and assess what their current environment is and make minor adjustments. Because at this stage, we really don't expect that people want to create a lot of capital expenditure on what we really don't know where we'll end up. So that's why a lot of it is around behavior around signage, around, um, you know, just reminding and nudging. I used the word earlier, nudging behaviors through design. Uh, So those are really, really critical aspects. And of course, increasing um, cleaning protocols and sanitation has been first and foremost. I suppose the other thing that... um, the pilot program is exploring a lot um, as an innovation is this issue around uh, reducing touch points and looking at how we can leverage technology in different ways. Uh, I think we're going to potentially see our personal device become uh, a real key to navigating uh, our access to the building, our access to the office, um, finding colleagues, finding different areas, anything from switching common uh, screens to ordering, you know, prepackaged uh, food. Uh, so those kind of interfaces are quite important, but also beginning to monitor the quality of the air and the quality of the environment through our own devices, we will see becoming again much more um, commonplace. So we're testing a lot of different ideas, um, and it's kind of, in a way, a very exciting moment because it's allowing us to begin to uh, have real case analysis on what potentially could really transform the landscape of the office. Very much so. And I love the idea of people being able to feel that ownership, right, of having all of this ability within their own smartphone to create and control, have that kind of uh, control their touchless work environment, as well as you mentioned, be able to monitor the air quality. 
It's, um, is there any thought around the technology to make the monitoring of air quality very public, very much like a, um, oh, like a thermostat or a smoke detector or, you know, carbon monoxide to be able to um, mm. be very uh, outward facing with that monitoring? Well, it's interesting you say that because pre-COVID, a number of buildings were already doing that. Um, I seen a number of buildings in Australia, in uh, China, in Singapore that were actually broadcasting in the building itself. So you'd have a smart board that actually began to tell you what the quality of air is, uh, what the quality of the environment is, and uh, in real time. And we are seeing some very um, interesting responses uh, from both uh, technology manufacturers, but also um, within the real estate community itself. I think increasingly uh, both landlords and occupiers are testing new types of devices uh, to create um, those new interfaces. And we're going to find that uh, many landlords will offer those diagnostics to their um, occupiers as a kind of precursor to letting you know what, what the quality of the environment is before you decide whether you should come into the office that day, in the same way the news tells us about the pollen count, for example. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I think that's very much, it seems that's going to be very critical, right? The uh, With any sector, it seems, of commercial real estate, it's going to be very much around the user confidence. So for our uh, commercial real estate professionals, they're out there on the ground. They're working with clients who own existing office properties, advising them, or maybe they're at their, you know, their own firm and they have their own kind of portfolio of properties in this sector. There are some really substantial changes to the workplace that are needed uh, before people are allowed back in that space. And uh, some have quite a few, as you mentioned, quite a few capex expense uh, kind of requirements. What do you feel are the best practices for tackling that daunting task? Like, where do you start? How do you prioritize? <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly why we created our recovery readiness guide. And I should say that it is free to download from our website. So if anyone wants it, they can access it. Just go to kushmanwakefield.com recovery readiness. It looks at what we're calling the safe six. And that begins to outline in a very detailed way, how do you begin to prepare the building before anyone starts coming back? What are the elements that you need to do? Um, I mentioned some of the things about, um, you know, ensuring compliance, uh, engaging your vendors in coming back to work plan, uh, reviewing and preparing any changes to the cleaning scope, ensuring inspections, remediations, repairs. Um, I've already talked about controlling access and then creating a social distancing plan and reducing touch points. What we haven't touched on, which the document does extensively, is how do you prepare the workforce for coming back? So the document looks at both how do you prepare the buildings 
in in a great deal of detail and it gives you a checklist of how do you begin to make critical decisions but it also looks at how do you prepare the workforce to create policies for deciding who returns and when and create the right communications to mitigate the anxiety of returning to the workplace through the right change management and planning um, and consider why people would benefit from coming back, who needs to come back in the short term, and also who can still work well remotely. I think um, one of the uh, safe sex we call communicate for confidence because we should really recognize um, the fear that many people have with returning uh, to the workplace and ensure that there's um, leadership alignment, there's a two-way communication that people feel that they have been heard and, and listened to. So these are very, very important elements. So, so both preparing the building and preparing the people uh, are the critical uh, pillars of the recovery readiness process. So we talked about the um, existing office development, but now some people are, we're in the middle of new office development. And of course, there's going to be much more of that um, going forward still, although who knows with all the uh, vacancies, they might be doing some adaptive reuse of some, <laughs> but either way, <laughs> um, given the changes to our industry as a result of this, what are the kind of skills and competencies that commercial real estate professionals should have in their toolkit that they may not have had before the pandemic, or um, maybe some that they need to focus on more now that this is the new normal, as I mentioned, which is kind of that hackneyed phrase that I mm. can't seem to stop saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, without without question, I think health and safety will continue to come first. And I think, you know, looking at health and safety um, as a real opportunity to innovate will be essential. And that has significant impact on asset management, facility management. Um, and, and I think that is very, very important for people to put at the forefront. Um, wellness, I mentioned a number of times. I think we will find that people will expect buildings to have um, not just the capacity to support their well-being, but also um, elements of certification. I think we will see much more um, uh, traction with in terms of giving people the confidence that a building is actually supporting their well-being when they're there. So I think we'll see greater emphasis in this whole arena of well-being. And it's been a trend, of course, has been happening um, for the last few years. But it's now, I, th I think, moving absolutely into the mainstream and the um, what I would call basic uh, requirements. Um, the final one I would uh, focus on is data. 
and and data in terms of two elements um uh, we we really believe that we need to see our buildings more as uh dynamic systems that um give us real time data that allow us to manage reconfigure plan maintain the space in a in a living way in an active way that has enormous benefits both for the uh, landlord and the occupier in terms of um, reducing costs, reducing carbon, uh, and creating more effective uh, environments. But also data in terms of understanding what people's needs and requirements are for the future. So connecting to the people uh, to the end users, becoming people-centric uh, in the way that we look at buildings, I think will be critical. Um, I suppose the one thing that we have all seen in the in this period of the pandemic is that the world, from governments to organizations to communities, has become very, very human-centric. And that has changed a lot in terms of the dynamics within organizations and the expectations of people will be different coming back to buildings. Um, I don't think we can underestimate how this enforced work-life integration will change both our perspective and our expectations of what our buildings uh, need to do for us. It's very true. It's, it seems like they, in retail, they, you know, they did experiential and kind of really focused. They've always focused on the consumer there. Mm -hmm. And I know that co-working and flexible was in response to um, the consumer needs there. But I think it's very interesting. This is a whole new dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, there. Do you see that, um, you know, for a lot of commercial real estate professionals, they may not have that expertise in house. So it seems like that might be uh, a burgeoning part of the industry having these consultants. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, it's very interesting because um, we have used the tool for a number of years. Uh, which is a, a proprietary tool to us. It's called Experience Per Square Foot. And it looks at, uh, it measures what the uh, attributes of experience are in, uh, in a commercial office building, how the building supports collaboration, focus, uh, employees' uh, ability to bond with one another, connect to the culture of the business, their ability to renew throughout the day and, and be well. Um, so it was fascinating to see that when uh, COVID happened and our clients effectively went to remote working overnight, we had over 2.7 million data points on what impacted remote workers' experiences. And we use the key findings from that to help guide our clients as to how to support their people in, in the immediate uh, change. 
But we also pivoted the tool to create an experience uh, per square foot at home, a five-minute version, which we distributed uh, to all of our key clients for free and to our own employees. And we've just been uh, summarizing the data from that. And it's, it's fascinating. And I think, to your point, it is going to be something that um, our world will need as an essential going forward. The understanding of people's experience at work will be critical. What, you know, based on those data points, what were like maybe the top uh, learning uh, those 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 things that you the lessons that you learned from those data points? Well, very interestingly, we found that um, effective team collaboration has reached new heights. Team collaboration through leveraging remote technologies has increased by over 10% from pre-COVID. And people were really amazed by that. Um, Of course, the companies that had effective technology tools did much better, but this was a huge gain because it meant that the overall um, productivity drivers of which collaboration is a key one were remaining in place. We also found that people, for the most part, were able to focus at home well. However, younger generations were struggling more because often they lacked adequate home workspace and often had small children at home who were being homeschooled. So that created a a greater stress on them on balancing um, all of those activities. However, even with that, work-life balance seemed to increase. So that was another issue. Point. Interesting. Um, the thing that was the biggest challenge and continues to be the biggest challenge, uh, not surprising, is our ability to bond. Human connection and social bonding is suffering. And that tends to weaken connection to company culture and the ability of people to learn. Uh, and, and the other thing that we found was that. Um, when we looked at well-being before COVID, people's ability to renew throughout the day was always the least performing attribute. And it continues to be a real challenge for people switching off. With all that said, though, I suppose the most interesting two uh, elements were that for the first time ever, 90% of the people responding said they felt that their managers trusted them to work remotely. And as we know, trust is the most important element that underpins flexible working practices. And therefore, it was no surprise that 72% of our respondents said that their expected their companies to embrace flexible working policies when they return to work. Despina, let's project out a year or so. Um, what's the demand for office, you know, the type of office? Uh, you know, WeWork just did a huge capital raise, you know, so it's, is that 
Is that misplaced? You know, what is what is your crystal ball for this property type? Well, interestingly enough, some of the data that I was just uh, referencing from our experience with Griffith at Home Survey uh, gives me great confidence in 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 a couple of areas. Um, I've I've always believed for over 20 years and, and tried to advise our clients accordingly, that technology has enabled us for a very long time to not need to go to work to be working. We could work from anywhere. But this pandemic has actually demonstrated to organizations that people can work from anywhere. So the role of the office, I think, will change. I don't think the office is going away by any stretch of the imagination. It continues to be a very, very important place for people to go to. It's just that as we move forward and as we project what is the role of the workplace, we definitely expect that organizations will embrace more remote and flexible working. Therefore, the workplace will become more of an ecosystem, a variety of locations and experiences to support people's convenience, functionality, and well-being. So when you come into the office, an office will need to be designed to inspire you to come in to connect with others meaningfully, to be able to collaborate, to innovate, to have connection to the brand and experience, the company's purpose. So interestingly, you mentioned retail uh, a few minutes ago and how retail had shifted into this experiential focus. And I think we will see exactly the same happen with offices. Offices will embody the culture and brand of the business and be there to bring together communities of people. We also are likely to see uh, more interesting solutions in terms of offices that are more local and regional and linked to where clusters of employees might live so that you don't have long commutes every day. So you might commute for a long commute one to two days a week, work locally one to two days a week, and work from home one to two days a week. So I think a much more dynamic ecosystem of work. That's fascinating. So it's really, uh, we might see a movement towards some more suburban office now to kind of meet that need Mm -hmm. and perhaps maybe uh, lessen their footprint in urban areas, still keeping that location, as you mentioned, because it sounds like that uh, meeting, uh, very worker-centric. So meeting them where they are, whether they want something uh, there, downtown, work from home. Um, and of course, the, the biggest piece, making sure that it's uh, safe and healthy and that they have confidence in that throughout. Um, Jasmina, this uh, thank you so much for joining me. It sounds like we have uh, some work ahead of us for sure, um, but having people like you share your expertise is just so crucial to helping the industry and industry professionals be proactive in addressing these pain points. Um, you know, up to this point, it, the, the way this pandemic had hit us, we felt 
very reactive and it's uh, very encouraging and hopeful to have this kind of information so that we can be proactive. It's been a real treat chatting with you today. Thank you again. Thank you, Larry. It's been great chatting with you also. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate. 